Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambhutasa Udang Dhammang Sanggang Namasami So welcome everyone. It's called the beginning of 2016. <laughs> it just feels a bit like yesterday. <laughs> so this is conventions we live under, times, places, names, identities, occupations. <laughs> These are the constructions that we live with. You know, we're taking for granted. Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, Thursday, 2016. My name is this, that, you know, I come... We take these things as uh, so accustomed to these conventions, aren't they? They are. There's no real 2016 written up in the sky. <laughs> Nobody comes out of the womb with a little name tag on them, stenciled on their skin. We, we adopt these labels and called conventions or system structures. These are human-created. Yeah. And I also like to remind... Everyone, they're also real natural beings. So something in this isn't just this human creations. Yeah, and so when we are uh, tuning into Dhamma, remember that one of the ways that Dhamma is translated is nature. Uh, not meaning plants and fish, but the natural order of things, where things feel naturally balanced and in order. Nothing is left out, everything feels complete and settled. So things in harmony. One's body is in harmony with one's mind. One's thoughts are in harmony with one's heart. One's life is in harmony with other people. Uh, one's actions in harmony with uh, what feels, what sets one in balance, in order, comfortable, settled, at ease. Yeah. So this is the spirit of Dhamma. It's called Kalyana. The true, the beautiful, the good. And we need to sometimes just rest upon those those words, what is good, what is beautiful, and where those, those experiences are. They arise in our nature. Now a lot of our life we can see for good and bad reasons is organized according to these conventions of nationality and identity and time and place. These are this is a part of what we live with. You, know? you want to go somewhere, you've got to get a visa. Birds don't need it, but we do. Uh, so these are the conventions, and you find that they re- there is a lot of them. Law, order, traffic lights, roads, protocols, infrastructure, uh, legal systems. And I guess as human beings develop, they develop a huge um, complexity of of order and organization, aim being that we'll make life more comfortable for ourselves. But you also recognize if you're seeking Dhamma, there's quite a lot of stress involved in all that. And in city life particularly, there's an extreme degree of organization because there's millions of people to try to organize. It can also be extremely stressful. You know? There's people rushing to work and trying to get things done on time and arriving somewhere on the right time 
and remembering lots of details and you have to have gadgets to tell you what to do and get your phone calls and get your texts and your messages and your GPS to tell you where you are and where you're going. <laughs> yeah. uh, so all this goes on, doesn't it? And the idea is it makes life more efficient or more effective. It doesn't make it necessarily more beautiful. <laughs> Sometimes it can get very uh, efficient, effective, but also we're really quite stressed and, and uh, cluttered. And so something that seeks how, how do I relax, release some of these experiences? How do I come out of this? What do I do to realize peace, peace of mind, something beautiful? And so this is the, you know, this is why we, we practice Dhamma, meditation, sila, samadhi, panya. We've also be aware that uh, you know, there's a certain amount of systems in Dhamma Practice as a practice, it's the systems aren't there's five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, and so forth. And there's systems, meditation systems, and techniques. These are also created conventions, helping us hopefully to find a balance. And if you recognize the you know the precepts themselves, which in some ways are five precepts, are quite simple. And we have what we call the convention, which is this is what it says in the book. And then we have the intention. This is what it feels like in the heart. And it's important to recognize that the most important thing is what happens in the heart, because this is where good and bad karma arise. They don't arise in a book. So we may have these conventions, but we're also using a convention to clear, clarify our intentions. So we look into things like harmlessness, is that good? Do you agree with that? When do you disagree with it? When something, some little creature is annoying you, you probably <laughs> feel you don't feel quite so committed to harmlessness when a mosquito is biting you. <laughs> so, yeah, but then killing a mosquito, was that, was that beautiful? It's often we do these things in a blur of reactivity or we say things in a blur say impulsive things so we don't really notice but if you contemplate and you steady yourself in the quality of intention you know this motivation of heart the urge to do and you study that this is what we're trying to cultivate when we cultivate precepts not just to keep the rule or try to you know get too legalistic about it but what is the intention what happens why why do people kill things what happens why do people steal things there's a blur a reaction and the mind loses its ethical sense of essentially the ethical sense is to others as to myself so it's not a me it's us and the development and encouragement of sila morality is to extend that sense of us to my friends my family people I don't like people I don't know other creatures animals you extend it and the wider it gets the more complete that that intention has become and then we've developed that precept now this means you have to keep savoring 
and valuing the quality, say, of harmlessness. Is this beautiful? What is the heart like when it's harmless, when it's gentle, when it's trusting? What's it like there? Savor it, value it, bring your attention into it, get it going, spread it. And this essentially is uh, the practice of all Dhamma is like this. You get a suggestion, a hint of what is good, true, beautiful, and you notice that and you extend it. Now, the good, the beautiful for human beings is actually natural. It's not a convention, but conventions can help us to get back to it, to come out of our blurred, reactive states, me-centeredness, and come out of that into something more beneficial and blessed. Now there's a returning to nature, true nature, as we know that in terms of environment, a lot of the you know concerns about the environment because uh, human activities have created an environmental problem. to pollution and global warming and destruction of creatures and poisoning water and poisoning the air. And this comes through this sense of uh, me. We see the world and the planet not as it is, but as what I want. And it's this particular self-centeredness that is actually the root of where we lose balance, where the mind loses balance, gets self-centered. This is right according to my perspective. This is what works for me. This is what I like or I want, or I don't like or don't want, or approve or disapprove of. And we keep pushing the world and each other and other nations or other people in trying to, you know, we, we push them into that. We try to organize life around me. And this is the essential issue that the Buddha is trying to deal with. Because the me, although it seems a natural reference, is a reference to an experience that we have. And it's called clinging or grasping. It means there's a certain holding on in that. Generally associated with wishing, wanting, owning, possessing, wanting to have things, wanting to get things done, wanting things to be this way or that way. And there's a certain grasping that occurs around this. This means the mind tightens up. And if that grasping gets very strong, people get very greedy or hateful or stubborn or proud, we can sense how hard that that me sense gets how opinionated it gets, how righteous it gets, how judgmental it gets, how unforgiving it gets. And really, if you contemplate it, it's pretty ugly. And we have this potential. This is potential to fall, this solid me. And a lot of our conventions are just exactly about doing that, becoming an identity, a name, a number, a nationality. But then when you cultivate and you come into meditation, and you look directly at your experience, there's no nationality to it, there's no place to it, there's no name to it, there's no time to it. It's just experience of sensations, energies, feelings, perceptions, urges, skillful states, unskillful states, 
wavering, fluctuating, thinking, dreaming. There's no person in there. You attribute it to a person. And this is often what we do when we decide to meditate. For example, you sit down. When you sit down for the first moment, you feel, oh, that's nice, sitting down. And then, now it's time to meditate. Oh, right. Okay, I better do some meditation. And me gets up. Me arises, and me decides it's now time to meditate. So, first thing I want to do when I meditate is I want to get calm. I want to get concentrated. I want to calm down. I want to feel good. I want to be peaceful. And so then, then the struggle begins. Because it's, <laughs> it's this self-consciousness arises that's going to do it. But as we witness, the self-consciousness is the essential problem. The me sense is the essential problem. It doesn't have to be a problem, but when it takes over, it's a problem. Because it wants things to go the way I want them to go as quickly as possible, with as least pain as possible, with as least expense as possible, and as reliably as possible, so I can get to that place I want to be at as quickly as possible. (laughs) So tell me how to do it. Somebody was asking a question, what's the... I want to speed up the process of enlightenment. How do I get there as quickly as possible? I say, well, speeding's not allowed. It's against against the law in Dhamma. You're not allowed to go speeding. (laughs) It occurs in accordance with nature, not in accordance with me. It occurs in accordance with nature. And the Buddha once gave a a little list, and he said, well, you know, um, it is in accordance with nature. It is Dhammata. He said, if you keep the precepts, and you're tuned to the meaning and the value of those, and you enjoy and you dwell in that, you know, which you should do, then it is in accordance with nature that your mind will be free from regret and remorse and guilt if you really enter into that completely. Don't hurry. You don't keep a precept by saying, Parnity Ramani, that doesn't keep it. <laughs> That's just, you know, putting a label, but you keep the precept by holding it, not fearfully, like I'm going to get blamed or punished if I do wrong, but what is the meaning, what is the essence, what's the beauty of this? And this is where you're asking your chitta to come alive, to wake up. Now, chitta is the feeling, sense, this, uh, not always easy to define, but it's the feeling, the sense of the, the center, call it the center of consciousness, the center of the mind consciousness. And we'll get, try to get back to that. But if you even ask yourself, who am I? Not as a name, not as a gender, not as a, what you, you, you people say you are, but who is here? You know, you close your eyes. Who, what is here? What is knowing? What is aware of being here? Now, you don't need to put a word in it. In fact, putting a word in it may, may mess it up. But there's a natural quality of awareness, isn't there? 
I'm using the word awareness now, but <laughs> I have to use something. <laughs> huh? It feels like sounds and sights are coming to this, this me thing. It feels like kind of interests and actions are rushing out of this me thing. But it's not, it's just um, arising, entering, permeating, and running out of jitta, which has no name and no identity. Basic sensitivity, basic awareness. Now this is, this, this whatever you want to call it, I'm calling it awareness, this is what the, the Buddha said is the, the essential piece to access. It's that which can be freed from defilement and ignorance. It's that which is the uh, generator of our karma, good and bad. It is that which we should look after most consciously and with, with deep concern. He says, nothing that wrecks you, damages you so much as an ill-trained chitta, a wild, crazy chitta. And as nothing can do you so much good as a developed chitta. And you develop it towards measurelessness, where it becomes freed from name and description, fear and worry, direction, time, place, and it knows it. It knows it is released. This is the liberation of chitta. But we have to first of all make sure we're touching that or entering that or receiving that. And the easiest way uh, that we can do that is on everyday life thing is notice where your intentions are coming from. Because from chitta comes chitana. Quite obviously the words are connected. Chitana is volition. Where do, you, where do your volitions, where do your intentions, where do your do it energies arise from? Not why they arise, you know, like I arise because I'm in a hurry. No, no. Can you find the moment of the arising? Perhaps you can't find the moment of the arising, they're streaming out. Uh, but you sense there's this energy rushing out to go somewhere or do something or think something. You just contemplate, this is volition. And where do the results of your actions rest? Where do they rest? Where does the the sense of what you've done, for good or for bad, where does that land? At the end of the day, when you sit, where do the results of that end? If you take something like a precept and you reflect on it at the end of the day, where does that land? That's citta. So it's the receiver of results of our actions and the genera- our actions are generated by it. And so the Buddha is saying it's in accordance with nature that if you keep the precept, your citta will not experience regret, or remorse, or guilt, or doubt. If you just stay in that theme, and use the fullness of your awareness to dwell upon it, take it in, attune to it, make much of it, and even rejoice in it. This is the fullness, the chitta can do all this. And thinking minds can move stuff around, ideas around, and add them up, but the quality of appreciation, enjoyment, Rapture, gladness, these are jitter experiences. Only your jitta can do that. <laughs> Only your jitta can feel happy. <laughs> yeah? That's its nature. It's a feeling sense, yeah? a feeling sense to it. And what is it like when it rejoices? It's generally abundant. 
glad, extended, isn't it? So you say, if you really develop that, that allow that quality to, to come to its fruition in the freedom from regret, blame, remorse, you will feel glad. Pomoja, you will feel glad. Sense of ah, self-respect, gladness. Gladness will arise. And if you dwell in that quality of, of gladness, you'll find that your, your thinking sort of slows down. This is natural. You don't feel you have so much to do. You don't feel so restless and fidgety. You don't particularly want to switch something on and watch it. You can just sit in that. And what happens is that the tension in your body begins to release, relax. And you feel yourself breathing out. When your body feels relaxed, it doesn't mean lying down because people don't necessarily even relax when they lie down. They relax their superficial muscles, but internally they still feel quite tight. Sometimes people can't sleep because there's still a subtle or less gross level of tension, worry, doubt, uncertainty, agitation, planning the next day, wondering if you did good enough hoping tomorrow will be this way or that way, turning over some thought about somebody else. The mind, the jitter is not glad. <laughs> it, is not, it is not released from that burden. So the body doesn't really relax. Now in meditation, it's actually in many ways better than sleep. Sleep is, is a natural function, but for really deep, deep tissue... <laughs> you know, relaxing, you need to meditate. And you meditate with your chitta, not with your I am. Your I am sense is always something that's um, much less than your nature. It's a slightly organizing thing. An organizing thing that sits in the middle of your nature, and it says, or if don't worry about, don't feel this, do this, do this, do that. Uh, so it tends to organize and narrow the range of jitta. The me sense is particularly heightened when we uh, experience ourselves in the context of other people or large organizations, because we get very self-conscious. Am I doing good enough? What do other people think of me? I feel a bit nervy. I'm not dressed properly. Um... I don't look good, um, I'm new here, uh, what's going on? Uh, you know, we get this kind of self-conscious thing, I hope I look okay, sound okay, don't do something wrong. Yeah, This is the, the me sense, isn't it? It's kind of trying to figure out how it is with other people, or how it is with how I should be. There's another juggling act that the me sense preoccupies itself with most of the time. How should I be? How could I be? What will I be? Why was I like this? How am I like this? How, if being like this, how can I be like something else? Which is, how can I be like how I should be? So it does this juggling act with complete fantasies. You don't know what you should be. <laughs> you have an idea, but you can't be now what you should be. Because should is to do with a conditional future, just basic grammar, isn't it? But now you're not what you should be, 
you're what you are, right? <laughs> However it is, and whether you like it or don't like it, or you think it's like this now. And our I am sense is always a bit nervous about that. Because right now, if you're really with right now, you can't judge it and have an opinion about it. Because it's, you're, you're in it, it's happening. And it's a bit chaotic. It keeps moving and changing, shifting. And the I am sense likes things nice and stable and regular and steady and organized and likes to know exactly what to do. It likes straight lines. Uh, but this isn't nature. There's not a straight line in nature. Right? Even in the universe, even light bends. There's, not, there's no such thing as a straight line except in the human mind. <laughs> so when we're trying to make ourselves into something straight, constant, unwavering, always ready, always there, always on time, then you're kind of trying to iron out the sea, make the sea be flat. And it, you just end up with this constant sense of tension because the sea is moving and you can't make it flat and steady, which is how it should be. <laughs> now, there's a process that um, you know groups undertake called rewilding. It sounds a little bit crazy, doesn't it? Rewilding. It means that they recognize some area of land has been used by you know, it's had factories on it or buildings or something. They want to bring it back to nature. And so they, they rewild, let wild, let the original nature come back to this. And you might think it's easy. You just, well, take, you know, move the factory out and take the buildings away or something. But it isn't so easy because you have to, first of all, take out the damaged stuff and stop the poison's flooding in, and we may have to reintroduce some natural species that people have shot or died out, you know, till it begins to establish itself in harmony. And so that this takes quite a lot of work. This is a bit like meditation. Here we are returning to nature, to true nature, recognizing that for lifetimes, not just this one, there have been distorting forces, distorting actions, distorting circumstances um, that have made it not comfortable, not beautiful, untrue. So, but we have to, you have to get a feeling for what is nature, not an idea. So we may have an idea of enlightenment or meditation or jhana or whatever, Purity, truth, these are great ideas, but you can't just, from an idea level, say, now be this. Because they're not human constructions. They're not things that could be constructed or created according to our will. But it is in accordance with nature that these qualities gradually come back and re-arise. We have to just keep taking out the damaging the damaging of the me-sense and sensing into something more deeper, more beautiful, more sensitive than that. And to continue, the Buddha also said, well, you know, surely when you think of it, isn't it a more natural, even if it's not normal, the natural body would be 
not tense. I mean, it'd be tense if you have to be tense. You know, if you're fighting something or you're running away, you might get a bit of tension on, and that's fair enough. <laughs> it can do that. Yeah. Struggling for your life, you don't want to do that in a relaxed way. But the idea is, oh, that emergency's over. Now we can return to the natural relaxed state. But you recognize in city life, the emergency is never over. It's not necessarily life and death, but it's, oh my goodness, is that done? And, oh, look at the time. Sorry, I've got, there was a phone call coming in. Come, right, I'll be with you. Yeah, not right now, I'm busy. Excuse me, I'll see you later. Don't, don't, don't. Where am I? I'm driving a car. Watch out for the lights, traffic, you know. And you're remembering things you should do. And you, and then you've uh, got plans of where you're going. And new stuff is coming at you. And you've got to keep, watch out for the traffic, the speed. This is called panic. And it's a state of mild, sustained panic. So, essentially what replaces something natural and relaxed, maybe a little bit slower, more easeful, is this high speed, tense state. And it eventually becomes so accustomed that we don't really even recognize there is such a thing <laughs> as, as not that. We just find ways to make the tension more agreeable. You know, get excited about something. Um, you know, get, get that sense of high energy coming from sports or television or something. Then that had something strongly pleasant that would just bury the tension. Just plop some sweetener on top of it so you don't feel the tension because there's this big hit of, of pleasant, excited feeling coming in. So then you don't feel the tension. But then the hit, that disappears. Ugh. You know? So we'll switch on something else. And we do that and then feel when the energy is tired enough, then you go to sleep. But uh, you haven't really relaxed anything deeply. And the sign of the relaxation is said that the Buddha says when your body has this quality of relaxation there's no need to make an effort may my mind feel happy you don't have to intend or put some willpower into trying to make yourself feel happy you have to do something to make yourself feel happy when your body's relaxed you do feel happy it's a happiness that's got no specific object it's not happy because of seeing or talking or remembering or it's just happy because happiness is actually a natural state. It's a state associated with being free from regret. It's the happiness of freedom. Freedom from regret, freedom from depression, freedom from anxiety, freedom from pressure, freedom from tension. You feel happy. Because that's, that's the nature of chitta when it is not oppressed. So we're returning to nature, but you realize that that returning to nature takes a little bit of work. It's rather like, you know, you go to a masseur and he gets his thumbs or his elbow on some spot in your body and starts pushing, oi, oi, oi. <laughs> but he's not trying to hurt you. <laughs> but he does that and then something seems to, oh, it lets go and you feel this flood. Oh yeah, that's better. But it was a bit of work, and maybe a little bit painful. 
but the intention is to release. Even if it takes a little bit of work. And the Buddha said, you know, if you have your, your child who's got a, a kind of a, a thorn or a stone stuck in his throat, wouldn't you put your hand in there and pull it out, even if it hurt him a little bit? Of course you would, you know, because eventually this is for the well-being. So sometimes it is does take a bit of, you know, working on some some tight stuff to to help to let go. And so we have systems that do that. One of those systems we do that is just remembering that we're going to die. It's not the most happy thought in the world, probably. <laughs> this is you're putting your thumb right on a nerve and pushing it. And you're saying, yeah, is it true? Yeah, it's true, but... No, no buts, is it true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it won't happen for, for long. You sure it won't happen? Keep pressing. You know, I know children who've died. I know children of two years old have died. In the monastery, they die at two. They die at three. They die at 25. They die at 60. A woman came to me, her baby had died in her womb. Hadn't even been born. Right? You, you can die before you're born. Death is not fussy. And it takes everyone, this is for sure, and you never know when your number's coming, but you know it will come. So you push on that point. <laughs> Where's your future now? Where's the plan now? You push on it. Where's your house now? Where's your car now? Where's the job now? And you keep pushing on it. And it uh, oh. <laughs> and if you're a bit unhappy, you keep, you'll be all right. You know, because this is nature. We die. And it doesn't have to be miserable. It could be a release. Bear this in mind. Better, because it's going to happen anyway, you might as well look on the bright side of it. <laughs> No more bills to pay. It's a struggle, but getting born was a struggle. You know, we can't remember it. Can you imagine what it's like when you just think of it or look at what happens to the little ones to get born? That's tough. But we all did it, and we all die, and we can do it. So you keep pushing on that. I remember a, a, a fellow I, I knew, he'd had, um, he went to the doctor, he he'd, wasn't feeling so well, so he took a week. You know, he took a week off work to recover, and he went to the doctor. The doctor said, "Hi." Looked him, did some examinations, did a quick X-rays, probes. Hmm. So I got some bad news. He said, "You have this particular kind of bone marrow cancer." I said, "You know, you might, you might not die. You might, you might be dead in ten days." He said, "Oh, but I only took a week off work." You know, I'm too busy to die. <laughs> that's, that's how tight that muscle gets, you know. <laughs> and one of the times some people took me out on a canoe, we were canoeing on a kayak, a sea kayak, you know, these things you go out on the ocean. And um, the person who's instructing says, well, you know, if it, the kayak might, you know, if the tight tips over, then you, you go with it, it'll roll around. So, but let go of your camera when it goes, you know. 
because people will actually hang on to <laughs> their cameras and their belongings or whatever, even if it kills them because of the compulsion to hold on. So just go with the roll and it will roll you upright. Yeah. You have to tell people, remember, let go of your let go of your weight, you know, you let go of your bag. They do on the plane, don't they? Don't take your luggage with you when your plane's on fire. Let go. Yeah. <laughs> because you can see that and uh, something instinctive is oh, oh I can't go there. I can't go until my hair done, you know. <laughs> can't go out without my hair properly arranged, well, you know. <laughs> That's how attached it gets, how the grip gets around around these um, appearances, identities, appurtenances, belongings that we can't hold. This is a good one to remember, because when you remember that, you also recollect, well, what's really important, what's really important, no matter what happens the rest of it, what's really important, purity of heart's important, gratitude is important, peacefulness is important, yeah. Then, whatever we do, whether you live or die, we've got we've reset ourselves. So, if you do this every evening, imagine you might be dead tomorrow. You know, put a bit of massage pressure on that nerve, and oh, oh. <laughs> let go. Let tomorrow take. Start tomorrow. Don't start it today. Now is the time to. Put it down. And so you start to work on things like that. Just the getting the, the mind to know how to do that letting go. What it takes. You know, so you do a very obvious example like that. Just feel what it's like to hold on. Hold on as tight as you can. And then it's like working a muscle in your mind. The, the, the holding on, the clenching muscle and what it takes to feel it unwind. And as you unwind that, you feel fine. It feels a bit un- uncertain because it's not me. And it feels a bit unformed and open. And, well, what should I, what should I do? What should I do? No, don't do anything. Just enjoy, appreciate. The mind is happy like that. It says, then the, the Buddha says, well, when your mind is happy in that, in that releasing, you don't have to make an effort. You don't have to establish an intention. May my mind be concentrated. May my mind enter samadhi. He says, when your mind is like this, it, it enters samadhi. It unifies. It gathers into itself. Give it a bit of time. Enjoy it. Steady it. Feel confident in it. And that will steady. It will be stable. You'll feel those things, I should do something, I should know something, what is this, what am I supposed to do, what's happening next. Just keep resting those and dwell in this quality of an awareness. There's no specific object, no specific function, no specific name, no specific intention or direction. And... Rest in it, enjoy, gather, contemplate, know, sense to, you know, whatever. And these things come, come, let them come naturally. Don't do too much. 
But just like someone tasting soup, first of all, you know if it's hot or cold, then you might say, oh, some turmeric in this. Mm. And some onion. Yeah, I can taste turmeric, onion, a little bit greasy maybe, or sweet, or, you know, you, you get more sensitive to it. This is chitta. Chitta is that sensitivity, to has this quality of taking in, and the more you open and refresh it, the more sensitive it gets. You're sensing into the natural beauty. This is with this, when the chitta is then replete, satisfied, steadied, confident, it begins to see things clearly. When I say see things, it's obviously not a visual sense. It begins to, what we say, have right view or know this is um, what is convention, condition, and what is not conditioned. And we, so it begins to notice that the, um, you know, that which arises comes up, actions, urges, instincts, drives, feelings, sensations, so forth. This comes up and declines. What is this that is aware of that? Now this attunement. So it's, again, it's, it's always a fun, what we're born with. We might say again very simply, chitta is the, is an aspect, it's the quality of consciousness. Now consciousness has two fundamental aspects. It's consciousness of seeing, consciousness of thinking, consciousness of touch, consciousness of pleasure, consciousness of displeasure, yeah. consciousness of an object. Now, when there's a complete sense of release, relaxing, cooling, dispassion, not taking a stand on, not fighting with, not getting fondling or fascinated by these objects, consciousness then rests. And jitta is the quality that can either go out in consciousness to objects, or it can return to knowing. Just, what is consciousness of consciousness, you might say? Consciousness that has no object, doesn't depend on sights or sounds or thoughts or intentions or inclinations. Just leave it there, leave the thought there, let it hang in the air, contemplate. You're seeing, what is it that sees? You're hearing, what is it that hears? You're thinking, what is it that thinks? Where does that come from? When there is a sense of dispassion, ease, purity, non-fascination with what is seen, heard, thought, imagined, remembered, consciousness ceases. It doesn't mean there's no consciousness, it means that consciousness is not producing and going out. And this is the rest consciousness that the Buddha recommended or pointed to Nibbāna and uh, understanding what gets us active and why, what's useful, and also how to return to that rest, the Nibbāna. Now, generally we need, do need to cultivate and meditate, to, like doing that massage, to, to get undone enough, <laughs> to get natural enough, to get back enough. So, yeah, there's work. But it's the work of like a masseur, the work of someone who's trying to bring back polluted land back to, to uh, 
greenness. Things you take out, things you prevent from coming in, and few things you have to restore, self-respect, composure, clarity, you know, and basically restoring this ability to contemplate, meditate, deepen, which is our fundamental possibility as human beings, and it's a possibility that we ignore at our peril. And if life is always skating along from this to that, we are indeed in danger because we're not spending time deepening. So I really encourage deepening, meditation, contemplation as our ongoing resolution for the realization of Nibbana. So this is my wish for 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. <laughs> I think you get the picture. <laughs> hey, Wong. <laughs>